You're listening to a provocation from the 2013 World's Literature Festival, where writers from across the world gather to discuss the art and craft of writing. This year's salon is on the theme of ways of reading, ways of writing. Okay, um, here we are. To source this today, in case you had forgotten. Um, and we're in a very different sort of space um, in this uh, darker, more cavernous space of the council chamber. Same thing here after the, this light suffused delicacy of the cathedral hostry. And because we move from light into dark, just as we begin to move towards shorter nights, um, it may seem as we are as though we were on a trajectory from an age of gold to an age of lead and possibly ending in some universal annihilation. <laughs> Certainly things are changing. I mean, in a way, that has been part of the... Um, it's just been part of the background noise, the white noise of the discussion, um, is that things are changing, things may be coming to an end, what will happen to this if that happens, and so on. So there's a sense occasionally that... Um, dreadful, tragic things are on the verge of happening. Um, history, I don't think, ever moves smoothly, I and mean, it always seems to proceed in a series of um, judders and jags, some of which offer wildly exciting peaks, offering visions of ever more exciting, ever more complete states of being, and others that seem worse than pits, abysses that are um, what Gerald Manley Hopkins said are cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. So we're somewhere between these things. Now the title of this series has been Ways of Writing, Ways of Reading, and that is what we've been discussing. And just to run over the whole thing first, we have considered the nature of stories, and the position of the self in a kind of polyvalent information system that actually modifies the wiring of the mind, we have come across developments in appliances and changes in the meaning of words such as appliances that complement, overlay, expand, or even possibly supplant the book object and all it does and has done while sending us into a tunnel of voices, images and lost rivers even as we roam the streets. We have thought passionately about the art of the novel in the face of commercial standardisation about definitions of experimentalism and the virtues of literary reportage over the three or five part novel form. We have watched the progress of a rebellious idiot genius boy as he writes novels in teen language, expands into blogs, into magazines, political censorship, and out again. And I've heard the suggestion that the sheer speed and miniaturization of the reading process thins out the content and substance a slow reading might provide. In the same session, we considered the possible locations of a protean self, an I figure, that conveys meanings and relationships that may be understood as a, almost as a form of palimpsest of claim and counterclaim as to how we react with what is around us. And right now, we had um, Jeff talking about conversations between artworks, conversations that happen within art, um, and on what basis these conversations occur and how far they impinge on the world of uh, property rights and so forth. <coughs> Broadly speaking, um, 
may asking a poet to sum up the discussion, you are in danger of being summarized by your images. Um, and there have been some really marvelous um, ones. Sierra's Mr. Spoon suddenly emerging from his position in language into the world, complete with neckwear, is one of them. It was almost like the moment, I think, in a mass when a host actually becomes the blood of Christ. It was only Mr. Spoon. But then again, he was more. He was the word made flesh, or at least an iron-based alloy. <laughs> the story, it's interesting. The actual individual stories, uh, I thought, were almost immaterial. There were those seven stories. We retell them. Um, but it was more the way spoons, electric tables, and pigs got mixed up in these stories. Um, it's a kind of uh, overcrowded or very crowded meta zoo of the way that human imagination experiences its own predicament. I'm going to do some quite twee now. <laughs> Most folk. Okay? <laughs> sure. Safety pin, the pure icon, the archetypal icon of the punk folk, okay? <laughs> you will get one of these each. <laughs> At uh, one point in Ruth Azeki's publication, um, the whole world, with all its works of genius and the might of idiocy too, was crowded into the thin film of the computer screen. A screen that conditioned not only its own reading, but our very being, our, our reconfiguring of pigs and electric cables within our brains, if you like. We were, in effect, becoming extensions of the system we had devised in a new version of the standoff between ghosts and machines. The image I will remember here is of the lonely, non-technological cabin in the woods, when the question of information retrieval, also known as memory, finds that its first instinct is to configure the question in terms of Google search. The cold turkey of the cabin in the woods offers a cure, though we cannot know whether it is a temporary or permanent one. Um, there are many, in between these two and the first day, we talked about many other things. We talked about the lullaby, which is one of the central planks upon which Sion built up his um, picture of the story, which implied to some people like kind of an overemphasis on the maternal role, I and mean, that, that was Becky's worry about this. Um, we discussed the distinctions between plot and story, which is not a new discussion, but it came in comes to us at that point. Um, we also discussed in Sharing the notion of the difference between a readership and an audience, and how ideally, in some way, one might think of readers as audience. Um, in um, Ruth's, we thought about the impatience, um, how, how to, impatience was death for novelists, how in a way one needs to be patient even while one is impatient. And I think very interesting, and this is one of the themes that I take from um, the um, festival the conference, is the idea of the blurring of self. What is oneself? What is somebody else? How are... And, and this theme carried on through later sessions too. So... You can pass these things around later. <laughs> you know, I, I'm kind of materialising things for you as I'm going. I am more or less, this is the mass, okay? <laughs> the image I will carry away from Rachel's, uh, I think, a mind-blowing app 
is an amalgam of the voice of the old diamond dealer um, and the moment we enter the sewers of London. Um, and the whole thing, I think, because we had begun this story, it was less a single story. Um, it was not a theological thing, it wasn't a historical thing. It was a layering of stories, a kind of palimpsest, um, which actually, to my mind, I was saying this to Rachel, is almost a kind of poetry to me. It's one of the things that poetry does, is it superimposes different layers of things um, and then locates a state of being. It's not so much a story of how we got here, but what the sense of being here actually is. Um, it's not that one question is more interesting than the other either, it's just that both are questions we are, I think, constantly asking ourselves. How the app stands in relation to the book uh, is also a fascinating question. Rachel <coughs> talked about the Talmud and the idea of marginalia, um, which is a lovely thing. Of course, this is This is a nice thing. Um, this here is a copy of The Tempest I picked up in a second-hand bookshop. Oh, many years ago now. It's not that I needed another copy of The Tempest. It was that inside it, somebody had completely annotated more or less everything. Um, it was actually um, a book of annotations for me, a scholar with a particular requirement, with a particular desire for that. So you can, yeah, have a look at that. If you, I'm, I'm very happy to pass around Thomas Falk if, if you wish to examine the book, we'll see. <laughs> or indeed, the place of refuge where we reconstitute our deeper selves. Um, what does that text do? What does that text do on it? Some people think books which have already been written on. I very much like them. Um, and I think, you know, I like them because the annotation modifies the text to some degree. Um, it's also a kind of act of deep interest on behalf of the annotator. It may be love, it may be simply a kind of um, desire to know more, to furnish out the text. It is a con continuation of the text. Um, it was reflecting on it and modifying it and enriching it, which I liked very much. Um, it was very, very um, interesting to hear that being related to uh, the idea of Aboriginal songlines, and it's a very moving moment, I think, in which we say that our models of reading and our models of writing are not absolute. They're by no means all there is. And we can learn things, we can substantiate things through... Um, physical journeys, through movement. Um, Marcel, Marcel's, I had a passionate and, and, and moving plea for a serious literature, or rather for the serious task of the literary novelists we had it in the world of commercial publishing, struck uh, many courts, and it did for us. I, I think we experienced it as a, I suppose it's a kind of called not exactly to arms as such, but a, but, a, but a call to concentration, a call to um, devotion. Um, although it, it does have something of the air that call to arms. So um, it, it had something of the air that does Henry V, you know, before Agincourt, stiffen the sinews, summon up the true blood of what we might yet be and aim for. Um, the novel, as defined by the assumptions of the um, presentation, um, of the provocation is the blood that we should um, summon. So, this is very childish. <laughs> really, terribly, terribly childish. Look, he's a warrior. He, he is called Disco Inferno. <laughs> he's a wrestler. 
and he moves. He didn't go backwards. When I was trying to write a novel about wrestlers, I, I was given this kind of thing. Um, so we had these sort of little figures, our little icons, our little um, wafers and, and you know, sips of um, wine. Um, inter- this, was, this was a very interesting discussion because um, you were discussing the novel as commodity. Um, there was the idea that you know, the ideal novel should be something that should be unfilmable, so you shouldn't be able to transfer it. Um, and it was a really interesting discussion about the various qualities and possibly virtues as things stand. Um, between, I think, the suggested things to begin with, which is literary reportage, that to say somebody writing the reports with the sensibility um, of a writer, um, and whatever, however, we decide to uh, define the literary uh, novel. There were all kinds of other models suggested for this diary, and of course, well, the English novel begins with letters, with a, with a epistolary thing of two people simply, of people writing to um, each other. Um, there was a question as to whether we had a kind of romantic idea of modernism. Um, so modernism as romance, modernism as uh, nostalgia. And I sometimes remind myself that modernism is now 100 years old or more, so it's never quite as new as it looks. And yet they've absorbed a great deal of it. And whether deliberately rewriting pastiches of modernism is in itself a new form of, uh, it, it's a revitalizing form or not. Um, in Benjamin and uh, Eric Abrahamson's provocation, it was really, if I think of the image, it was undoubtedly this illiterate, ill-educated boy with his genius for hitting on formats his own rebellious generation would instinctively understand, and that this is associated in the discussion with the idea of him being a product of a single child family policy, which was interesting. We didn't really explore that. Um, and the idea that this, this kid might have been addressing cyber siblings, cyber brothers, and sisters in a language of a kind of shared yet lonely virtual adolescence. Um, a world that's in revolt with the authority that created it. Um, and that was seizing on the nature of electronic social uh, communication as if it were discovering and creating little messages in bottles. Now, this went along with the idea um, that shortness um, is diminution. Um, not punning on that, but shortness, you lose them. You lose substance, you lose them. The ability to develop an argument, which is true. Um, and it was essentially that this idea of creating bottles, you can't really put Gibbon's decline and fall into a tiny, tiny bottle. So what you can do, but, you know, a bottle with a message. I wrote the message. Um, and what the message says is, O Rosa, sit the invisible worm that flies in the night in a howling storm, as found out by breath of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Um, William Blake. It's small, but it's not as small as it seems. <laughs> it has, it has um, dimensions beyond its uh, bottle dimensions. Um, so, that smallness. The idea, actually, there, which I came on as well, the idea of poetry 
as being uh, no less substantial um, for its shortness um, than a long work might be. Um, so we got the bottle. Among all the shadows and nuances of the Japanese first person singular in Sashi Matsuya and Michael Emery's presentation, I wondered how that first person singular might address itself in the mirror as it was shaving or putting on its makeup in that moment, that primal shock of the self in its own kind of momentary nakedness, and how that endlessly shifting set of communications that all languages conduct with both self and others relates to, say, the shifting names and forms of the internet, where they move our identities around, or people do move their identities around, um, very frequently, almost as a part of the nature of the business. Um, this was um, interpreted, this is my sum up note, um, in the light of the deadpan translator's note, above all, in the beautiful image of the tissue paper thrown against the wall. A wall I kept straining at because, as a poet, the wall seems not quite so stable as the walls of the cathedral seem to be. The wall, of course, is language in the metaphor, and the tissue um, is the work of art the artist throws at it. Um, as a poet, my sense of the wall is that it is one that is constantly making and remaking itself, parts falling off, others being patched, always something new being built. You're just another brick in the wall, as the song had it, and the bricks kind of go on. Um, yes, but uh, we have our tissue paper as an artist, and um, I suppose will provide my own, and here it is. Um, it's clean, <laughs> I think. And um, even when it isn't, it might be throwing, we're throwing at something like James Joyce's Not Green Sea. You know? It has its home, and so here's this little um, work of art. I, I sometimes feel that as a poet among novelists, and there are just two of us poets here, you know, who are outrightly primarily poets, although many people are poets as well in a kind of another sense. We are kind of like children who've been allowed to come away from their feet to experiment best contemporary educational sandpits, um, <laughs> to engage in conversation with serious adults who like actually make a living from their art. So we can talk about the way they make their real living from their serious art. We poets tend to think that the world of language began with two equally important imaginative acts, the poetic act and the storytelling act. So, using the idea of figures, Mr. What's this? And Ms. What's next? I mean, these two are not quite the same creature. They overlap. Of course, they communicate with each other all the time. Um, and I suspect in our hearts of hearts we all know this to be true. Um, but I guess be, must be kind of true, or at least I am, because you see what I brought you. I brought you these things. I brought you a plain old fork to which I stuck a bit of blue tack and I put a <coughs> safety pin on. I brought you this stupid little thing which somebody gave me when I was thinking of writing about wrestlers. This magnificent Tudor cottage, but which has no Wi Fi. Um, and this cheap bottle and this little bit of paper. And of course, a very, very nice book, which I picked up for a song, and I picked it up for about a quid in a second-hand book shop um, with great pleasure. Um, 
I will take that, let me have a look at all of because I want hand around a handkerchief, I'll keep that maybe for its proper use at some time. Um, but I thought I'd bring along something um, which, seeing as I am a poet, um, I will, and I've done this before, and I kind of hijacked this by reading you one very short poem. Um, this is a poem, um, and I'll tell you how it came about. And uh, it came about, it's, a, it's one based on a translation out of Mahmoud Darwish. This uh, translation was presented to me by Mimi Khalbati, who suggested it as a technical exercise. Um, this thing, which I'm going to read, isn't a translation, um, it, but it wouldn't exist without its original. It is a transplantation. Uh, just as for all I know, Darwish's original poem might have been. Um, it's called We Love Life Whenever We Can. Um, and in his poem, in Darwish's poem, this is absolutely full of the circumstances of everyday life, of where he is. So it's just full of his personal bits of clutter. It's what he knows and sees around him. Um, and this I think of as a kind of annotation, as a kind of marginalia. As most writing, I think, is, some of it more so, more, con more consciously. Um, and I will end uh, with this and then see what we think. We love life whenever we can. We love life whenever we can. We enter the grocers, the bakers, the chemists, the post office daily. We love life whenever we can. We borrow each other's books and paper clips and forget to return them. We spruce ourselves up for a meeting, order a taxi, climb into a bus or a train. We love life whenever we can. And so we sign letters and cards and spend the evening walking the street when the winter is fiercest and a light in the windows and amusement arcades snarls at the darkness and the sea is quietly chomping at the cliff and the owl and the rat and the fox move over and through and we hear them and listen. We love life whenever we can. Can I stop there?